Okay, the little guys can go to Children's Church, and if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 22. See, you thought we'd never make it, but here we are, chapter 22. Let's have a word of prayer before we study God's Word together. Our great God, you've called on your servant Matthew to write these words out for us, to recall what the Lord said in his presence. And it's overwhelming. It's amazing. The master, teacher, the Messiah come to his own people to face utter rejection and to speak to them truth that here we are 2,000 years later and we can read it and understand. We thank you for that. Give you great praise and thanksgiving. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, when you interact with people in the world on the subject of God, you hear a lot of really interesting things, especially, um, there's kind of a new thing, you know, this, uh, you know, there's always been atheists and people that didn't like that. There's kind of a new atheism, you know, the last 10, 15, 20 years or so, and it's pretty aggressive, and um, Saul was pointing me to a, a guy online who just sits there and tries to destroy whatever people believe. I started looking at some of those videos, they're pretty entertaining, but... Um, of course, they always have their things to try to unsettle you. One of the things people say is the world is too evil for God to be good. They might say that. And to that person, you could say, well, if, if you read the Bible, just the first few chapters, you would know why the world is that way. It explains that. And then the person might read that in the Bible, and then they'd come back to you and say, well, I can't accept such a harsh God. He, he blasts people for sin. He condemns them. So God isn't good because there's sin, and he isn't good for punishing sin. So, either something's horribly wrong with God there, or something's horribly twisted about human thinking. Now, the Bible would take the position that there's something really twisted about human thinking. That the consistent thing, the right formula, is that God is good, so God punishes sin. I mean, that, that's kind of rational. It's, it's sort of eminently reasonable. God is God, and he gets to decide uh, how he runs his universe and what the standards are and how he's going to deal with things. He's also a person. God is not a force, uh, some kind of karmic power. You feed in, you get out. He's a person. He's an infinite person, but a person. And we are persons because we're made in his image. We're just little persons. We'll never be infinite persons. So we're creatures. He's the creator. He's self-existing. We're utterly dependent, even on our very existence, on him. He's also perfectly holy and good and just. We, on the other hand, are, are not holy, not that good, not just. Worse than that, human beings are rebels in God's universe. We like to think of sins as sort of like weaknesses or foibles. Ever heard that word foibles used about your, your sin? Or frailties. Frailty sounds like something so delicate, like something crystalline and beautiful, but it... Uh, it's just sin. Sometimes I just can't help myself. That's what we say. And we blame God for that too. You made me this way. So sin is actually a rebellion against our king and our maker. It's one thing to rebel against a tyrant. It's another thing to rebel against infinite goodness. One you can understand. One makes no sense at all. Obviously, a rebellion against justice and truth is evil. So the Bible pictures humanity in this state of rebellion against a good, 
true and just God. And by any measure then, if the Bible is correct, God has every right to punish humanity any way that seems right to him. However, that's not all there is. The Bible says God is compassionate, abounding in loving kindness, and truth. That's how God actually describes himself when he's asked by Moses to reveal his glory. God describes himself that way. So the simple, well-deserved destruction of rebels, though it would be just and is just, that doesn't satisfy all that God is and all that God wants to express about his nature. That's why we have this thing called history, because if God just wanted to blast evil, he just would have done that right away, right at the very beginning. But here we are, thousands and thousands of years of human civilization, people destroying each other, all these horrible, horrible things that go on and still go on all over the world. God could have destroyed creation when man fell, when man rebelled. It would have been over, or he could do something else. Instead, he launched this plan, and the plan laid before the foundation of the world is a plan of redemption, redemption. And this plan, God's compassion would be obvious to everybody and in it he would rescue all kinds of people from their condition as rebels and actually restore them to him as children. This plan turns rebels into children. I was a rebel, now I'm a child. How did that happen? This incredible power of God's saving grace, that's how it happened wasn't anything I did. So the Bible is the story of that plan working itself out in history. It's the story of a holy God, terrible in his wrath, holy to the core, yet full of compassion and mercy, a God who delights in the salvation and happiness of his creatures. So you gotta stop and think about that. God loves creatures who despise him. And he saves many of them. So there's a covenant in the Bible very early on, Genesis chapter 12. I mean, we're talking really early. See how thick that is on this side and how thin it is on this side? See, really early. Right away, there's this covenant he makes with this man called Abraham that directs the whole story of redemption. You just follow that promise he made to this man, Abraham, and his sons, Isaac and Jacob, and on from there. You follow that through his descendants, and he, part of that covenant right there at the very beginning of the Bible, right in the, near the very beginning, is in one of your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just your tribe, your people, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a promise in this ancient, ancient time. So that's like 4,000 years ago. That's a really long time ago. Very early in human history. And we're living. Many of you, most of you, almost all of you are here because you're the fulfillment of that promise. And its fulfillment is still unfolding. It all started with this one man, Abraham, and his sons and their sons until a man came, Moses came along. And through his great work as God's lawgiver, you've all seen the Ten Commandments movie, I'm sure, the DeMille movie, you know what that is. The Israelites were pulled out of Egypt and became a theocratic nation. A what? Theocratic, what is that? Well, what's a democracy, right? Rule of the people, right? What's an aristocracy, a rule of the few, right? A theocracy is the rule of God. God actually planted a nation in the world, this tiny little nation in the center of the earth, named Israel, tiny little place, 
And he said, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my light to all the nations as they pass through you. And everyone will know about me through you. That was the great plan. In fact, that purpose was laid out in Exodus chapter 19, right, right before the Ten Commandments appears in the Bible. God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do priests do? They mediate between God and man. They bring God's truth to men and they take men and bring them to God. He said, oh, the whole kingdom is going to be that. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. Models of faith and humility and grace and obedience and blessing for the whole world. And he warned them, sin is going to destroy this whole idea. So you can't disobey me. You've got to obey me. He promised to tear them out of the land, the promised land, if they sinned and worshipped idols and did all these amazing things. But right along with that threat of driving them out, he made them an unconditional promise. He says, but I'm going to send you a savior. I'm going to do that. So he taught them about sacrifice. He built it into their worship. Sin requires shed blood and death. Kind of an atonement idea. He also said he would send someone to be the sacrifice, to bear the sin. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about that. Daniel chapter 9 talks about that. So the same person God reveals, the Savior, is also going to be a king. A king whose throne would govern the whole world and never come to an end. And over time, more and more things would be revealed about this king through the prophets that God would send to the people of Israel as they were continually failing and falling into sin. This coming king would be powerful, he would be wise, he would be just, he would be tender, he would have compassion on the lowly and heal the broken, he would answer the needs of every human heart. But as a nation, the Israelites never took to heart that promise or their role as priests to the whole world, a nation of priests. They did, they, well, the book of Judges describe, describes it. They did what was right in their own eyes. So whatever felt good to them, that's what they did. So they became like their, their neighbors, the pagan neighbors, idolatrous, greedy, oppressive, lewd, corrupt. You name it, they swam in it. God sent messengers one after another to remind them of their covenant, of their mission, of God's calling upon them. But only a very few listen. You know, when one of the great prophets, Elijah was running around, God said, look, I've got 6,000 whole people that haven't turned to the false gods yet. So don't be discouraged. 6,000 out of what? Out of like millions? That's how many were faithful. That's not many. So God sends them into captivity. They're there for 70 years. He brings them back. And some good men come back. And they try to get the whole thing going again in the right way. Nehemiah, Ezra, guys like that. And you know what? The Jews never did idols anymore after that. They were cured of worshiping idols. But something else happened. They sank into mere religion. Just religion. Doing their rituals properly. Um, codifying everything. Making extra little rules. Rules and rituals. Rules and rituals. And that's the world Jesus came into. That's the religion he found when he came to his own people. The Savior did come. The King came to his own people. And while some were delighted at his coming, most began to reject him because he reminded them again and again 
of what God expects from mankind. And they didn't want to do that. Humility, trust, love, purity, mercy, forgiveness, all the things people didn't want to do. He directly called out their spiritually dull leaders, their religious teachers, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the people that ran the Levitical system, the temple worship and all that. He called them out and they hated him. They hated him for that. So they decide to kill him so they can keep things the way they were. And that's where we are in our great story right here. It's the last, uh, the last two weeks we've looked at how Jesus is explaining all of this through parables that he's been giving. So we are on Tuesday of the Passion Week. That's the, he's going to die on Friday. It's like Tuesday. Crucifixion is just several days away. On Friday he'll become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's been telling it like it is in these parables, the history, the reality of his coming, his approaching death, the consequences for Israel's rejection of him. He's explaining all of it. Remember the first parable in Matthew 21, 28, about the two sons showing the leaders that they were guilty of opposing what God was doing? And then the second parable in 21, 33, the owner of the vineyard who rents this Wonderful, beautiful vineyard he plants out to the, these people to make him some return. It's a symbol of the nation of Israel. And when he wants to get what his fruit should be, they start killing his servants. Every time he sends a messenger, they kill him. And he decides to send his very own son. And they murder him. And Jesus says in 21:43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce the fruit of it. And the chief priests and the elders say in verse 45 of chapter 21 there, it says they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So they're ready to move, they just need the opportunity. So God sends his son to his holy city at the exact time he was prophesied to come and they're gonna kill him, that's the plan. And Jesus is telling them that that's what they're doing through these parables. So in Matthew 22, we have the third parable of this string of parables he gives on this same occasion, describing what God is doing and what he's going to do. There's a lot of details in this parable, but it's not hard to understand, at least not on this side of history. Now remember, a parable is just using life situations to describe what spiritual realities, what the kingdom of God is all about, what, whatever God is doing right now. And this parable uses the setting of a royal wedding. So it says in verse one, Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So the king's son is going to be married and it's gonna be a very lavish wedding. In fact, in my notes at the bottom, it says Terry Morrison is planning the wedding. For, for, the, for the king's son. So this wedding is a, is a big event and it's a royal wedding, huge, huge event. It's a privilege to be invited to this, this wedding and a sign of respect to the king, obviously, to attend. If you get a, a, an invitation from the king, you go, right? But it's a parable. It's not a story about kings and weddings. It's a parable. It's telling you something about the kingdom of God and the history and what God is doing and what's going on right then and there. So what do we know? Well, the invitation concerns who? The king's son. 
the king's son. Just like the parable of the vineyard in 21, 33 through 36, focused on the landowner sending his son to be to these murderous renters of his vineyard, this parable also is about a king's son. Now, a lot of Jesus' parables aren't about king's sons. Why all of a sudden is he talking about king's sons? Because on Sunday, he arrived in fulfillment of prophecy as the Messiah, the king's son. And they were calling out, Hosanna to the son of David. The king's son has actually arrived. And they hailed him, the people did, as the Messiah. The idea of the Messiah as a divine son is pretty interesting Interesting in the way it's woven through the Old Testament. Especially um, certain passages like Psalm 2. I'm going to read Psalm 2 for you. It's the second Psalm in the whole book of 150 Psalms. You're supposed to run into Psalm 2 like right away if you start reading through the Psalms. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand against the, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, and against his anointed. Anointed is the word, what the word Messiah is. So the kings of the earth are taking their stand against the Lord himself, God, and the anointed one. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They want to be free. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me... I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And then it says, now, therefore, O kings, talking to the kings of the earth, Show discernment. Take warning. O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Son is a refuge. He's also a terror. So can you hear it? How blessed are those who take refuge in the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, who he describes as his son, the son of God, to whom is given the nations as an inheritance. Wow. And he's here. I mean, in this story, he's actually present, speaking to them. And the parable leans heavily on this idea of the Messiah having this unique father-son relationship with God. He's not like other men. He's God's son. He's God the son. The second idea we get from Matthew 22 in verse 2 is that of a feast. It's a wedding feast. The son is going to be married. So this imagery of God as the groom and his people as the bride is very common in the Bible. And the coming of the Messiah should be a cause for what? If it's a wedding, how how do you feel when you go? Joy, it's like going to be wonderful. You're so happy. And that's what you're supposed to feel because the Messiah has come. He's the fulfillment of long dreamed dreams. He's the hope of the people. He's hope realized. Peace and justice abounding. It's a good, it's a good time to celebrate with good food and wine and happiness. 
And the, so the invitation to Messiah's kingdom is the invitation to a feast. It's a, it's a party. It's a celebration of God fulfilling these long, long desired promises. So now in the ancient world, they didn't have email and they didn't even have a post office. So you had to send invitations out like on a, at a couple of times. So you'd send one invitation out. You'd send your servants out and they'd go see everybody and give them the initial answer. We're going to have the wedding, the king's wedding on this date and this particular time. Be ready. You'll get, a, you'll get somebody come out to bring you in to, to the wedding. It lets you know everything's ready for it. So the follow-up invitation announces that everything's ready. You actually see something like that in the book of Esther. Um, the, the initial sending out of an invitation and the, this is the day, time to come kind of thing. So that's what Jesus is describing here, a typical event in those times. Verse three of Matthew 22, the servants are sent out with the second invitation. The time to come is now. It's already a royal wedding and you're invited. Please come. This is the time. The animals are all taken care of. We're ready. Shockingly, something very strange happens in verse three. The king sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast and they were unwilling to come. The guests didn't want to. They didn't want to be bothered. They couldn't come. I mean, what an insult. Outrageous display of disrespect for their ruler. So one would expect the king to be pretty angry about that, right? What? Everybody's not coming? But he's not angry. He reaches out to the invited guests again. He sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I've prepared my dinner and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's a second plea from a king to people that didn't want to bother coming to his son's royal wedding. He's a very patient man, this king. He describes the feast for them. He reminds them that it's all ready. And again, he invites those same people. So here we see the patience of God. Remember, this is about God, not some story about a king. I don't believe any earthly king would have done what God did in terms of patience. I mean, God, to whom all reverence is due, total obedience is due by every human being, every creature, is incredibly patient. And all of this depicts God's dealing with Israel over 1,400 years ever since Moses. He's so patient, constantly sending prophets and messengers and having them ignored or killed or beaten. And look what happens to the second group of slaves, verse five. They paid no attention and, and went their way, one to his farm, another to his business. So a lot of people just said, yeah, thanks for the invitation. I got some stuff to do today. I'm working in the backyard. Verse six, the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them, and killed them. Now they're killing the king's servants who brought an invitation to attend a royal wedding. That didn't happen to Prince Charles or anything. Everybody wanted to be there with their funny little English hats. <laughs> These people are, what's going on? What's going on? One group pays no attention in verse five. They don't care. They're just off to do their own thing, do business, make money, play in the yard, whatever. Stuff that really matters, you know. So they ignore the king. They, they don't want anything to do with him. The second group actually attacks the king's servants. They even kill some of them. So that's an open rebellion right there. And you know what? 
Humankind has not changed one bit. It's still that way. Still that way. Same today. Jesus, God's son, invites people to a feast, a life with him, a life of spiritual blessings that that a human being can only hope for, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, adoption into God's family, Christ as your brother, eternal life with him. And people ignore it. They act like it's not a big deal. Doesn't matter. Why, why would they think that way? Well, that's rebellion. That's kind of a passive-aggressive rebellion. I'm not interested. Don't need to come. They don't want him. They, they really don't want anything to do with him. He's going to cramp their style, I think, they think. And in this way, humans are very much like the devil, Satan, because he wanted to be a law unto himself, and that's what people want to be, a law unto themselves. So most people get the invitation and they ignore it. But some, not wanting to be reminded of their wickedness, actually go after the servants. And in many countries around the world today, that's the way it is. Um, Christianity, all the human rights groups will tell you that Christianity by far is the most persecuted religion in the world. And you can think of some very large countries and some very small countries, but the church is exploding there and they are jailing, torturing, and... uh, putting aside as many people as they can. They say the largest growing church in the world right now is probably Iran. Iran? Yeah. Yeah. God is doing amazing things there. And China is another one. Where they, they they just ordered every Chinese church to put the premier of China's sayings in place of the Ten Commandments. They have to take down the Ten Commandments and put the Chinese leaders sayings in in place of the Ten Commandments in churches they're rewriting the Bible for them and they're going to have to use the new Bible by the state that's a billion people it's amazing and if you complain off you go so it still goes on people hate the servants that God sends into the world in our country it's just spite and mean, saying mean things, bitter words, aimed at God, but it has to be directed at his servants because you can't get to God. Rebellion and murder. So Jesus is describing Israel's relationship with God. Israel, those are the covenant people. Those are the people that are supposed to represent him to the world. And he's talking about them. They're, they're in rebellion. They're the murderers of God's son. It was in the previous parable we looked at last time where Jesus exemplified the typical treatment of God's prophets throughout Israel's history. They were hated, they were hunted, they were ignored, they were slain. And God waited a really long time from the giving of the law at Mount Sinai until the coming of Christ over 1,400 years, patiently pleading with his own people. Now, if I was God, I would not have sent the king. Why send my son to be murdered by these people? Why do that? I just would have said, forget it. But you know why he did it? Because he promised that he would. He told Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he sends his son. Well, how did the families of the earth get blessed by him? Well, that's going to happen on Friday and on Sunday. It's only Tuesday in our story. But even at the end, he sends a messenger to get everybody ready for the coming of the Son, for the feast. And that's John the Baptist. What ended up, how did he end up? Headless, 
lost his head. But for the king in Jesus' story, patience does have its limits. After the rebellion comes, they start murdering his slaves that bring the wedding invitation. Uh, he can't endorse that. So the king learns that his subjects will not only dishonor the son and, and his authority, but even destroy things that are good and worthwhile and take lives. So his wrath is finally kindled into an open flame. So now the king's patience is done in verse 7. The king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. So with great destruction, the king overthrows those wicked rebels. And we know this is taking place in A.D. 33. By A.D. 70, the Romans would come and completely destroy Jerusalem, kill tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, sell everybody else into slavery and, and take the city down to the dust. That's going to happen in the lifetimes of the people Jesus is talking to. But you know what? His son is still getting married. And he deserves the honors that are due him at the wedding. So the king does something else. Verse 8, the king said to his slaves that are still alive, the wedding is ready and those who are invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Verse 10, those slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Now, this idea parallels what we saw in 2143 in the last chapter where he says, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce the fruit of it. So the feast is the kingdom of the Messiah. Those who received this select invitation, those honored with the presence of God's son actually coming to them, those who had the greatest blessing, the covenant people, they didn't, wa they didn't want it. They didn't want it. So the program changes. The feast is going to go on, but others will enjoy it. So verse 9 speaks of the main highways. You know, if you went to a main highway in Israel, there's two main highways that run through Israel. If you went out to them, you know what you would find? Pagans, Gentiles, caravans, passing from Africa to Asia Minor and the Eastern nations. They had to go there. There's a huge... Oh, the Mediterranean Sea is here. Well, if you're looking this way, it's here. And, on the other, and over here is a giant desert and there's this little narrow slip. It goes straight through Israel. That's it, two highways. And it's full of unbelievers, pagans, people that worship other gods, other cultures, people that are not in a covenant relationship with the living God. Gentiles, the dreaded Gentiles on the trade routes. Go out to them. You know, there's a moment in the book of Acts which tells the history of the early church that really summarizes this shift from Israel to the rest of the world. Remember, the promise to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what this is about. He's reaching out beyond the borders of Israel. But Paul is, the first, the first synagogue that Paul preached at after his conversion was in Pisidian Antioch. I believe we were there. It's found in Acts chapter 13, and I can't read it all, but here's the flavor of the sermon. This is part of it, it and it's an invitation we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. 
For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be made known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is an invitation to embrace the Messiah that God has sent and proved it by raising him from the dead after his crucifixion. So he's giving them this invitation. He urges them after this point. He says, don't resist what God is doing. And then down a little farther in Acts 13, 42, it says, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now the next Sabbath, a week later, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. So everywhere through Asia Minor, through North Africa, through Europe, the Jews heard the gospel message first. Some of them believed and became part of this new thing, the church. But mostly they were Gentiles. A shift was taking place. God was doing something wonderful among the Gentiles. And that's as Jesus said, the feast will have its guests. The kingdom will have its people. God's grace will find its favored ones. Another interesting feature of this new invitation parable is the description found in verse 10. So those slaves went out to the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and the good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So this is, this is the gospel, the good news about Jesus' salvation to all men both the evil and the good. The joys and the delights of Jesus' kingdom is not dependent on anybody's past, their previous history, their morality, their religion, or incredible wrongdoing. It's open to all of them. The worst among us is invited to sit in the kingdom with the best. There's no preconditions on being received in the kingdom of God. Just accept the invitation. And the invitation is to come and honor the son of the king. Now, somebody might misunderstand, so he adds one more thing. Verse 11. This is an interesting feature. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there that was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. He had nothing to say. Then the king said to his servants, bind him, hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's well, pretty strict. Someone is at the feast without the proper garb. Well, wait a minute. I mean, these guys just came off the highway, right? Maybe he didn't have the proper garb. But everybody else does. Everybody else does. You know, in this situation like this happens, the king supplies the clothes. This guy didn't want to change his clothes. 
Now, that's not about clothes. It's about his life. We're talking about the kingdom of God. This is a parable. He's speechless. He doesn't have excuses. He has nothing to say. What does it mean that there are people who will come and want to sit in Christ's kingdom, but not on his terms? So this is the false brother. He's not there to honor the son. Maybe he just wanted something warm and some good food. And so while there's no religious or moral requirement to be invited and to come and to know the son, all are invited, but the feast itself does require the proper attire. And we're not talking about wearing ties at church. We're not talking about clothes at all. What is this garment? What's he talking about? The garment represents humble submission to Christ, coming to Christ, letting him change your heart. The change is internal, really. The wedding motif is very strong in the book of Revelation. In chapter 19, verse 6, it says, I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her, the bride, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The righteous acts of the saints. That's the garment. So this person the king sees wants the experience of the kingdom of God without the king. He doesn't have any interest in the king. He likes what is offered on a human level, you know, nice people and external civility and proper behavior, and, but he's not turned his life over to Jesus, this, this guy. He's an unchanged man. That's what his garments represent. He's wearing the old man. He's in his old clothes. So the fruit of the Spirit is absent from his life. Genuine faith is absent from him. Love for God is not even something in his heart or head. You know, we can't always see clearly but the king sees, the king sees clearly who's changed their clothes and who hasn't. And he spots him immediately. And he knows he doesn't possess what he needs to have to stay in the feast. So listen, we can't earn our salvation. We can't please God with what we do or anything like that. We can't and we never could do that. But genuine salvation comes out of a new heart, a heart that loves God and desires above all things to be his and to serve him. And this man wouldn't change his clothes. He just wanted to be who he was. Don't want to get religion or anything. Maybe he talked like that. The king's reaction to this fellow is totally unforgiving. Bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whenever Jesus uses language like that, he's talking about hell the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And at this point, he isn't using parable language. That's his normal terms for the, the bad place you go. Hell is a real place, and he's, he's not softening that at all. This pretender is going there. He's outside. He's excluded from the feast, from the kingdom of God. So sitting in church doesn't make any man or woman a Christian nor does doing Christian things or serving Christ in some way. I'm not a Christian because I preach. A Christian is a person born again by God, by his grace, working in the heart. 
So Jesus concludes all of these parables, these three parables with this powerful statement in verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Every time Jesus is asked about how many people are going to come into the kingdom or are going to be saved and all that, it's always a few, always a few compared to the many. And here it is again. Many people hear the gospel of God's grace and his saving work and what he's done for mankind and how the cross bore our, he bore our sins on the cross. Many people hear that Jesus endured God's wrath in their place so that they could put on a robe of righteousness and be clean in God's eyes. They've heard that God will accept them and make them children in Christ and most people ignore it. That's a nice story. Some people hate it. Some people ignore it. Some people play at it. Or they, they accept it on their own terms, wearing their old clothes, if you will. You have to come on God's terms. A few are chosen. God opens their hearts to believe and makes them alive is the language Paul uses. So if you don't have a heart that's alive to Christ today, what can you do about that? If I was you, I would beg him for it because he is gracious and compassionate and abounding in loving kindness. And if you ask God for a new heart, he'll give you that. He'll change you. Submit yourself to him. He's so patient, but don't presume on the patience of God. Never presume. Come now to get to know him. Accept it. Slip on the robe the king provides, this white robe. It's fine linen and clean and white and it's provided by him. Come to the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way that's the that's the wonderful news and it's the sad news but if you embrace the wonderful news you are chosen you're one of the few let's pray Father thank you for Jesus speaking with such clarity I know he's doing it now because the time is so short when he spoke these words for those that were there and it's always short really because we don't know when the day will come when we have to see you face to face but it will come so we ask you for this special saving grace in us to open our hearts to see the glory of Jesus Christ the son of God the savior of the world and to embrace him with a whole heart we ask that you would give us power to do that and humility to do that today in his name amen